Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Silver and I believe that evolution of the world requires evolution of the individual. I believe entrepreneurs are consistently changing that world and we always will be. So with this show I will bring you the people and ideas with tools necessary to hack your growth in your business and your life. Together let's ask the world's biggest questions, build businesses to solve them, and live happy and fulfilling lives in the process. It's time to evolve. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. Today's guest is a serial entrepreneur, best-selling author, keynote speaker, angel investor, and life hacker who is widely recognized as one of the world's top authorities in the neuroscience-backed methodology for accelerating learning, which has taught over 250,000 people in 205 countries and territories around the globe. But since the age of eight, he struggled for decades as a student and a slow learner, with an inability to pay attention and keep up with the class, eventually being tested for learning disabilities. In high school, he was introduced to Ritalin, which not only helped him excel to be on the honor roll and eventually accepted to Berkeley, but at the age of 16, he started an e-commerce company that would go on to become one of Inc.'s 5,000 fastest growing companies in America and reach the seven-figure mark. But after graduating from Berkeley, he sold this company frustrated with the many challenges facing him and decided to go to one of the top business schools in the world where he would face even harder curriculum. During a short pre-MBA internship, he would meet two mentors who unveiled the ancient techniques to unlock the incredible capacity of the human brain. After an intense period of relearning how to learn and decoding secrets behind some of the world's top performers from around the world, he has emerged with a system he believes can help anyone become a, sur- a super learner and live their best lives. He's not the only one, though, with his faith in his methods. Since 2014, he has been one of the top performing instructors on the online learning platform Udemy with over 200,000 students snowballing his success in launching his rapidly growing company, Superhuman Enterprises, which produces numerous online courses through the Superhuman Academy, helping a variety of people from medical and law students, individuals overcoming brain damage, to people living with cerebral palsy. His award-winning Superhuman Academy podcast has also been downloaded over 3 million times and features world-renowned guests like Dave Asprey, Tim Urban, and Hal Elrod. He's been featured on TEDx, The Wall Street Journal, Inc., Business Insider, Lifehacker UK, and hundreds of the top podcasts such as Entrepreneur on Fire and Mixergy. And according to the founder of Genius Network, Joe Polish, his new book entitled The Only Skill That Matters has been said to be one of the most important books to reach your full potential. I'm honored to welcome founder and accelerated learning expert of Superhuman Enterprises, best-selling author of The Only Skill That Matters, and a seven-figure entrepreneur who was once a half hour late to a Jamba Juice interview, Jonathan Levy. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Brandon. Wow, you did your homework, man. I feel like you know me better than I know myself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to dive a little bit into your past. And um, you were born and raised in Silicon Valley. Your parents were entrepreneurs. You even like tried to do some marketing for your mom when you were younger, like four years True. old. Um, it sounds like being an entrepreneur was sort of in your blood from the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I always say, you know, I think people give me too much credit for being an entrepreneur. By the way, to the video listeners, I apologize for the fancy blue blocking glasses. Mm-hmm. But as we are talking, sleep is such an important thing. Um, I always say I get too much credit because a lot of the role models in my life were entrepreneurs. My parents were both entrepreneurial, my uncles, my neighbor's parents. So I just kind of thought growing up that uh, if you wanted 
money to buy things like a new bike, you just started a business. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that was the model that I had very much. Yeah. Um, and you struggled quite a bit like growing up. So why search out these things to uh, fix that rather than just accepting it, you know, for what it was? By the time I was 13, I was already considering like, do I want to continue in this life? Mm-hmm. Uh, and ultimately I decided yes, partly because I was an only child and I, I realized like the devastation that suicide causes uh, and how it's a very, I hate to say it, but like a very selfish thing. Um, and so I decided if I was going to stick around, well, I might as well make the best of it and and figure out a way to enjoy my time on this planet. And it was, you know, it's, there wasn't one moment that I could turn back to Brandon and go, that's when it happened. But it was a lot right. of different moments. One was, you know, when my great uncle Ernie handed me a copy of how to win friends and influence people. Um, and I realized like that, I could actually learn how to be a better person or at least mm. learn how to be the kind of person that I had always wanted to be as opposed to the kind of person that I was tired of being. Um, and I know that sounds like so dramatic, but at, you know, at 13 years old, the way that you show up in the world, you're hyper-conscious. And so I was this right. kid who wasn't performing in school, wasn't performing in after-school activities, wasn't able to create social bonds. And and so every single aspect of my life, I was like, I just don't like who I am. And slowly but surely, I realized that I can change that, that that's Mm -hmm. malleable. And that learning, as I say, is the only skill that matters. Because once I learned, uh, once I learned that message, then it was a matter of just finding and seeking and acquiring the skills I needed for whatever the next step was. Taking on this journey of learning, as well as I see um, being an entrepreneur is like one of the best uh, personal development courses you could ever take. And so do you totally. think that was instrumental to your transformation, this identity shift? Yes, on a few different levels. One, I think entrepreneurs, and usually when I do interviews, I'm talking about how we need to talk more about how hard entrepreneurship is and it's not sexy and it's it, and it is all those things. And entrepreneurs have one of the highest suicide rates, uh, depression rates, right. divorce rates. It, it's hard. But one of the luxuries we have if we choose to um, exercise that luxury is freedom over our time. Mm-hmm. And I think if I'd been a nine to five employee, I don't think I would have had the time to research and seek out and go to conferences Mm. whenever I want and, you know, uh, watch so many different uh, YouTube videos from speakers that I admire and listen to podcasts and all the things that I've done that have, that have really impacted me. So that's on the one hand, there's also an element of resources, right? Uh, Personal development can be cheap. We live in a wonderful time where you can learn so much from podcasts like this one. And there are so many great books out there for seven bucks, but you know, I spend over $50,000 a year on my personal development. Uh, and that is a huge blessing and privilege that I don't think I'd be able to do if I weren't an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on top of that, on the other side of it, I think entrepreneurship is a really rough, brutal mirror. Like, you know, those mirrors in the hotel that like blow up everything yeah. and blow it out of proportion. You see every little imperfection. Well, entrepreneurship is that mm-hmm. because the stress is high. Your self-worth and self-esteem are so intimately tied if you're not careful. And if you haven't done the work, they're so intimately tied to the rising and falling tides of your company. It's very easy to get into a place where you identify and derive all of your self-worth 
from what is the bottom line in my company or how much money did we raise or how many employees are we, you know, whatever, whatever the metric is, right. It doesn't just have to be money. Like how many, I know a lot of people who run nonprofits who had difficulty deriving their self-worth from how many lives have we saved this year, but that that's not an indication of your self-worth. Um, and so it's hard. And, and I think entrepreneurship will bring so much of that up to the surface. If you have insecurities, if you have a tendency towards anxiety, if you have fears around money, uh, and issues and self-esteem, self-esteem stuff, um, that's entrepreneurship is going to bring that out for you. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, one of the mm-hmm. other things too, is, um, we are often building this business from a passion or an impact that we want to make in our lives. And you actually stopped doing your original seven figure business of selling luxury car parts because you felt it wasn't changing people's lives. And now right. you're running a business, you know, that you get emails daily from students, you, you know, book lunches with them to hear how what you're doing is affecting them. So tell me about that sort of shift in purpose that you had. Yeah. I mean, I, Back then, I think part of it was purpose and part was also ego, if I'm honest. Like Mm -hmm. I felt that I, you know, if I've done this much by the time I'm 18, what could I do by the time I'm 30? Mm -hmm. And so there was this element of, I want to build the next big billion dollar business. um, And and here's what I can achieve. Uh, And I think a lot of that has changed. Again, doing the work and, and looking into the lives of people who've built billion dollar businesses and going, well, wait a minute, I don't, I don't want to make that kind of a sacrifice or wait a minute, I, you know, it's, I actually don't care about money that much. I care about money, but not that much. And, and, and coming to terms with that. So, um, but yeah, absolutely. To your point, part of it was purpose. And part of it was just, um, you know, am I, first off, am I enjoying the work that I'm doing? Mm-hmm. But also I think as we get older, we start thinking more and more about legacy. Right. Um, and, and I'm not yet at the point where I'm really thinking about <laughs> legacy. You know, I think by the time you turn 50, 60, you're really thinking like, what will my legacy have been? But, uh, but I started thinking about it and I started thinking about like, okay, you know, if I can do this, then what else can I do? Mm-hmm. Well, let's dive into some of the techniques that you started talking about in your mm-hmm. book, The Only Skill That Matters, which was a wonderful read. And it's probably going to be one of the books oh, that you. I go through several times um, to get that awesome. uh, repeated coming back again and again, as you talk Spaced about in the book. repetition. Yeah. Um, but tell me about what your A to Z process is for sitting down to learn something new. From your book, Ooh. it kind of sounds like, you know, you prepare yourself by learning, you know, to basically ask yourself why you're learning and what level of understanding do you need, but where do you go from there? Yeah, you got it. So first thing I want to do is, is really consider why I'm learning what I'm learning to what extent, how I'm going to use the information, because that's going to dictate how I design my learning process. Now, um, you know, there are some things that I learn for giggles and therefore it doesn't have to be this, uh, heavy planned out structure. Like as entrepreneurs, so much of our lives are structured and planned (laughs) out. So right now I'm, one of the things I'm learning about a lot right now is, uh, I don't even know how to really call it, but it's like uh, prehistory, right? Mm-hmm. So like what did the world look like 100,000 years ago based on what we know and and how did human societies develop? And I don't have any structure there. It's like, I want to know this for personal interest and passion. So I've laid out a couple subjects that I want to know more about and I'm just reading the right books and watching the right lectures. And uh, 
On the other hand, if I were to learn something like uh, a new language, that would be a different ballgame, right? And I talk mm-hmm. about in the book a lot um, about how I've learned languages the wrong way and you can't undo improper learning. So I would lay out, I would have a, a specific plan, but I think one of the most important things that I want people to take away is this idea of continuous feedback loops. And I talk about that in the chapter on self-testing because when you embark on a project, like when I embarked on Russian, mm-hmm. learning the Russian language, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I can memorize hundreds of words a day. I've got these memory techniques down. I already speak three languages. Like I get grammar. I, it's like, it'll take me three months. It's taken more than three years because you don't know what you don't know, right? It's that unconscious incompetence. And so there is, and and I learned this from one of my business coaches is like plan for failure, right? They always say like failing to plan is planning to fail, but also this is going to get confusing. (laughs) Failing to plan to fail is, is, is just as bad, right? In the sense that you are going to hit speed bumps. Do you have a plan in place? Like one Mm -hmm. of my uh, team members, I was like, well, we should just do a live zoom call this week for our, our mastermind members. And we'll do this and we'll do that. And I'll talk them up and I, I've got them trained so well. He goes, so what's going to happen if no one shows up to that call and it's just you. I was like, you're right. We need a plan B we need, but it's not about a plan B. It's about what are the steps that we will take to reevaluate and how will we know that reevaluation is necessary? Right? So like mm-hmm. give you a classic example, people want to study for the bar exam and there's a schedule, you know, you go to a test prep company or whatever, and they tell you, you need to read this far by, and that's all well and good, but 90% of people fall behind because life happens. And that schedule is, is a punishing one. And so do you have a plan in place that you are going to use to close that gap? Mm -hmm. For example, are you going to skip ahead and, and stay on the track and just cut things that, you know, you didn't get to, or are you going to, take extra time to study and close the gap that way. So having that plan in place. And then from there, it's really a matter of deconstructing and figuring out and using this self-testing mechanism to consistently figure out what I don't know, right? So I think a lot of times what people do when they're learning, I, I call this bowling with the lights off. And I talk about it a little bit in the book where learning is this process where you do have to bowl to some extent with the lights off, right? You have to learn and then go and apply. And sometimes you can learn by doing, but no one's going to let you learn heart surgery by doing. (laughs) So you have to study from the book and then you have to go and practice on, you know, a cadaver or whatever it is. So what I advocate in the book is instead of bowling the whole game with the lights off, the example of that being people who study a year of Spanish and then go to Mexico for a weekend to test out their Spanish, as opposed to every single weekend, go have coffee at a, you know, in a Spanish speaking area of town and consistently test. And I call that switching the lights on between the rounds. Mm. So get those feedback loops in as, oh, so sorry about that. Getting those feedback loops in as frequently as possible so that you are getting feedback as to what you need to learn. And then right. you're constantly adjusting the plan as you go along. Okay. Um, and so how do you, uh, how do you start to lay out that plan for yourself and break it down? Like, okay, I need to learn this much. Um, I, I can see the usefulness of like, once you start testing, you can go back and like, okay, well, I didn't really understand this. And so this is something that I need to have that spaced repetition of and we're kind of relearning. Precisely. So I, I do start to sketch out and then it's, if you almost imagine like a decision tree, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the easiest example is learning a language, right? pick up your first hundred vocabulary words, go out, try them, 
figure out, oh my gosh, I don't know any pronouns. Come back, learn pronouns. Go out, try it again. Oh my gosh, I don't know how to conjugate. Learn to conjugate. Mm-hmm. Benny Lewis is really good at this uh, from Fluent in Three Months. He's a master of learning languages in these increments and getting yeah. this feedback on and on. And, um, and, and that's how I do it. When I was learning acro yoga, what I would do is I would go, I'd spend like six hours a day in the park <laughs> learning from people and figuring out what do I need to work on? And then I would take note either mentally or literally take notes like, okay, I'm having difficulty with this turn. I need to come back. I need to study the theory behind that or ask someone, you know, show me exactly how your foot is turning, deconstruct it, and then go on from there. Where do I get stuck next? So it really is a lot less structuring out in advance and a lot more of these feedback loops. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other um, thing that you bring up is brute force learning, which I really loved the idea of that you kind of basically take your learning from all these different sources and compile that together because I found that that's how I learn, um, especially all the things that I study um, for entrepreneurship or anything that I'm trying to learn. And I didn't really realize that this was called something until I had read yeah. your book. Yeah, it's a master skill. And, and you know, the perfect example there is like, do you really want a lawyer writing your will who read one book about it? Right. <laughs> like, no, I don't. And I don't want a heart surgery surgeon that's only done it once. <laughs> yeah. You really want people who've seen every possible case and instance. And you want them who you want those who've learned it from as many possible different angles as possible. And so but the education system fools us into thinking that that's not a good thing, right? Because Mm -hmm. your teacher says, you're going to read the textbook, then you're going to come into class and we're just going to talk about it. And so you come away with this impression, many of us do, where it's like, I need to learn it once. But actually, all the research shows, first off, you need to learn it many times. You need Mm -hmm. to learn it from many different sources. And, And, you know, this is what Herman Ebbinghaus called overlearning. It's like, even once you know it, continue learning it. Because uh, I know a, a great number of the world's top memory experts, and they'll all tell you if you don't review your learning, you'll lose it. Yeah, um, I think it, too. It's finding what's going to resonate and click for you because, like, Bingo. we have hundreds and thousands of you know weight loss books out there, but there's somebody that actually speaks to you in a certain way that, like, oh, exactly. once you read it that way, you understand and you can apply the knowledge. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly as I say it in the book. Clearly you, uh, you remembered quite a bit of it. (laughs) Thanks. The other thing that I want to talk about is upgrading your brain or maybe returning Mm -hmm. back to a paleo brain, as you might put it. Um, where do we start with the stack of skills for ourselves? Yeah, I love that. And I love the way you phrase that upgrading the brain, because for years I told people, and I had to be careful how I said it. And I'd say, you know, this is going to Re, I use metaphorical language, right? Like this is going to upgrade the way your brain works. It's going to totally change the way you remember things. And I called it, a, you know, a complete uh, operating system overhaul, mm-hmm. switching from gas to electric. And then a study came out from Radboud University that actually showed that literally the techniques that we teach in the book rewire the way you use the brain's networks. Mm-hmm. Very simple. So it, it literally is you're changing the way your brain works. And the magic of it, Brandon, is all you have to do is learn how to tap into your natural photographic memory, if you will. Um, We are naturally wired to think and remember in pictures. In fact, in 2014, a study showed that you can't actually remember something without having some kind of visualization. 
memory is inextricably linked to the parts of the brain that deal with imagination and picture. So rediscovering your photographic memory just means learning the way your ancestors did, right? Creating picture. I mean, they didn't imagine pictures. They didn't have to because all their learning was visual and smell and, and tastes, which are even deeper wired into the brain. But you can't smell your way through a law degree, unfortunately. <laughs> so, so we use uh, visualization. And you'll find that all the world's top memory experts, all the uh, record holders, they all use visual mnemonic techniques. This is something that goes back to 2,500 years ago, uh, if not more. And the basic idea is visualize everything that you want to remember, create unique novel visualizations that connect to your pre-existing knowledge. And then at the highest levels of, of memory sport, you're putting it into what's called a memory palace or an imagined or real location, such as your home, your office, and you're actually organizing a library, if you will, of your memories. If anyone's seen uh, Sherlock on BBC, they have mm-hmm. an episode where they have to uh, kill someone or assassinate someone who has a vault of state secrets mm-hmm. uh, and is blackmailing all the politicians and business leaders and whatnot. And it turns out the vault is in between his ears. It's actually a memory palace. And he takes you through the memory palace and actually shows you what's in it. That's actually exactly how it's done. The only difference is he has like little files, file folders in there. And that's not actually how you would do it. You would create bizarre visualizations Mm. of all these different secrets. Yeah. Um, You mentioned that uh, smell and taste are even wired further back. Have you done, or is there any people that do basically like, if I studied all this stuff with a certain inset and then I lit that inset later, that it would help jog the memory of the things that I was learning? Yeah, there are some studies around that, uh, and I'm not too, too familiar with exactly how the studies were conducted, but uh, it, there are studies on what's called state-based learning. Okay. So this idea of like, if you're, if you're drinking a beer and you study because of exactly that, and, and it's really interesting, smell and taste predate sight, mm-hmm. uh, and they're wired in to the reptilian brain, which are mammalian brain parts, if you will, like the prefrontal cortex are actually wrapped around a reptilian brain. That's a huge oversimplification. I'm not a <laughs> neuroscientist, but that's as, as, as much as you really need to understand. And they are wired deeper, which is why if someone passes out and you slap them across the face, they won't wake up. You shout at them, they won't wake up, but smelling salts will actually wake them up. So uh, that makes, it's part of the reason, again, another part of the reason is survival advantage. Being able to know like what rancid food tastes like is pretty important, you know, being able to spit it out because you go, wait a minute, last time I ate this, I almost died. Um, So that's part of the reason why if you, I, I was riding around town today and some woman passed me by and I smelled her perfume and I was instantly transported back to age 13, first kiss. That was the <laughs> perfume. And I know everyone has had that, that experience and that's why. Yeah, yeah. And, and we teach our students, you can actually uh, associate smells, particularly like, let's say you're uh, reading about ingredients, right? Or, or you're studying cooking and you want to memorize recipes. You can actually create in these memory palaces smells and, mm. and the, human, the human nose and brain can identify something like 64 million unique smells. It's wow. insane. Don't quote me on that number, but it's, it's really quite, quite impressive. Yeah. Yeah. 
The other thing I want to ask you is with all the learning and memory techniques that you have, what things do you do to prepare for your podcast interviews with other people that you have on your podcast? <laughs> you want to know that the God's honest truth about two or three years ago, we got to a point where I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. So we send out, I'm also super geek on automation and productivity. We send out a pre-recorded or a prepared list of questions I might ask, mm -hmm. but really I just focus on having a, a fantastic conversation with people and sussing out and learning from them. I actually, most of the time know nothing about them before mm -hmm. I go into the podcast, besides maybe a little blurb that my assistant has given me on like their bio. Um, and we actually got the response from people that they preferred the lighter, more conversational format more. So I was like, it's fine by me. I used to spend yeah. half an hour to an hour generating unique questions for each episode and people didn't like it. So, yeah, um, that's interesting. Cause that's, that's what I do. My process is I generate unique questions for each one. I do a lot of listening to past episodes and whatnot. I can tell the guest, um, how many episodes have you done that way? Um, we are at 19 on this podcast and then I have ran a podcast before this and I had, mm, I probably 20 or 30 interviews. Talk to me at 250. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you also, I think, and you, you clearly have this, you get to a point where you can, and, and I'm not saying my way is the right way. It's, it's definitely, it's just the way that works for me with my schedule and also my issue was like, how do we keep this thing going? So we're out there providing value for people, even if my schedule doesn't really allow for it. And I, I kind of don't want to do the research and the work I'm on. Right. So people I think would be very surprised at what a low information diet I'm actually on. So mm -hmm. just because I can read 700, 750 words per minute and I can devour books doesn't mean I do. And a lot of what I do is, is really refining in on like what information am I consuming mm -hmm. um, and making sure that it's the right sources. So for example, I don't really read blogs. I don't listen to podcasts very much. I consume a ton of books because mm -hmm. I figure if it's made it to the point where someone has decided to sit down and write 300 pages about something and it's made it, you know, I have a criteria for choosing books and hundreds and hundreds of people have reviewed it. It's probably worth my time. Um, and a lot of the blogs I think that people read, Cal Newport, Nirael, Charles Duhigg, those get turned into books and I, I get the very refined and fleshed out version, James Clear, Atomic Habits. So right. uh, I rely on kind of this pro this like filter to get my information. Um, and, and part of that is like, I don't research my guests so much. Mm. I kind of just suss them out on the, uh, on the show. Yeah. I think that's an important though in the learning processes, um, being able to understand, you know, which information is going to fuel you best for what you're trying to right. do. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I try to, I try to take on big learning projects because we're always learning, right? I, right. I had a podcast guest who I really love this idea is every single day when you journal, which I hope everyone has a journaling practice. If you don't, I recommend it. But one, I, I vary up, you know, some days I journal about my dreams and some days I journal about gratitude. And one of the things I, I throw in to keep things spicy is, is this thing that uh, Marco Tessi told me about, which is just write down what you learned yesterday because it's mm. so amazing to flip back. And, uh, and so I learn a lot of, you know, cool little stuff all the time. Um, 
But then I try to have big themes, right? So the, the prior six months, I was learning about commercial real estate investing. So it was very directed, driven. I read entire books. I attended lectures. I, I interviewed people, you know. And so now, and my wife will probably kill me for saying this, but now I'm trying to learn about like uh, children and creating a family <laughs> and like what, what do you need and what are the nutritional requirements and, and what are all the different things and theories and strategies on childhood brain development. So I, I take on big learning projects because I, I think that's fun. Uh, and I, I think that's like, I, I'm not going for mastery, but it's, uh, it's, it's really cool to know a lot about a lot. Yeah. And you have this idea of like nurturing curiosity because you view learning like as creating neural connections. Like the more you have in there, the more connections you can make between stuff. So how do you nurture that curiosity continuously in your life? Exactly. I used to beat myself up because I would pick up piano. Like I play. And when I say play, I, I dabble in piano and, uh, what's the harmonica and guitar. And I dabble in a bunch of different languages. And, you know, I used to beat myself up about all this kind of like jumping around. And then I realized like, one, I don't really enjoy getting to that mastery level. Like Mm -hmm. it it would not be fun for me to get to the point where I can read Pushkin in Russian. It's like, it's not what I, what I'm really passionate about is, is those first steps. And what I realized is actually my hobby is learning. Like I really mm-hmm. love the hard, heavy learning curve. And then when I get to the point where it's like, uh, I can kind of like make my way around Moscow and I can ask people what they feel about this and how they feel about that. It's like I, the, the heavy lifting learning part is now gone. And I'm just bored with the, the day to day of like learning another song on the piano or right. get reading music just 10% faster. So uh, I don't beat myself up about it anymore. And I've come to realize that like, First off, I, I believe that all learning has value. You don't always know what it is, but I mean, people will tell me like, oh, I'm learning this silly, you know, to which I'll reply like, you know what I learned my, two quarters before, before it was real estate investing, I learned how to knit. I'm a master <laughs> knitter now. Let me tell you, like I can keep up with these. My mom has a group of like 60 year old women who knit for charity and I can nice. keep up with them, you know, and, and but that has value. First off, I, I learned a, a really cool skill that brought me joy and pleasure. So mm-hmm. that, there's that whole thing. But my hand-eye coordination is now even mm-hmm. better. Um, I've created some awesome gifts for people that they'll definitely <laughs> remember for a long time. So I, I really believe that all learning has value. And what I talk about in the book is, is you don't necessarily know what it is, right? Like I never thought that when I was learning Olympic weightlifting or when I was learning kinesiology and biomechanics, to fix my knee pain that I'd had for years and years and years. I was learning it for that. Fast forward 10 years, I'm learning acro yoga and I want to pick up and and work with the more advanced people and do all the flips and the tricks and all that. And all of a sudden I was able to pick stuff up so much faster because I understand how the knee joints work and I understand Mm. how the, the femur compresses into the hip. And I understand the idea of transferring weight and what's the, you know, most effective path for transferring that weight. And, and that was an epiphany for me of going, wow, I'm, I'm never, ever going to beat myself up that I'm not learning the right thing or dedicating the, you know, the amount of time that I should to a given learning. And I believe that, you know, motivation and attention and, and passion are your most precious resource. People say mm-hmm. time is the most precious resource, but you know what? 
Not really, because I don't know about you, I can only focus and the research shows you can really only get into a flow state for like four hours, maximum six in a day. So like Mm -hmm. you have 24 hours, but you can't actually, and there are genetic freaks out there (laughs) who can, who clear metabolic waste faster. I'm not one of them. Elon Musk appears to be. But um, so, okay, I have 24 hours a day, but only four to six hours of flow a day. If that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and we could talk about the difference between flow and focus. But so that's even an even more finite resource. So I say, if you have it and, and you're passionate right now about going down that, and, and let me preface by saying like, if you have real work to do and you go down a Wikipedia thing about <laughs> Franz Ferdinand and understanding why that was the shot that was heard around the world and why did that trigger the world war and whatever happened to the Austro-Hungarian empire, like, okay, it, this is a big caveat with, if it doesn't interfere with the things you actually need to accomplish and achieve, but, um, I'm all for going down these learning rabbit holes. Yeah, one of the first rabbit holes you went down, what you started talking about, um, was fixing your body. You read a 660-page yeah. book on body language. You learned, you know, how to manual on how to fix the body. And I really think yep. that um, somewhere along our journey, we should be given a manual to our body and our brain, just like you would get for like a car. Like these are all the parts. Oh, this is how it works, and you know, this is the fuel that goes in all of that. But for our own body and brain. You know what makes me so angry, Brandon, is in writing the book, I I went for a funny joke and I wrote, you know, you had 10 to 15 years of physical education where you learned how to use every other aspect of your body. You had one to two semesters of very awkward sex education where you (laughs) learned how to use specific parts of your body and no no education on how to actually use your brain. I mean, not even Mm -hmm. basic stuff, right? Like, and, but then I, through the process of, of writing that and doing interviews, I was like 10 to 15 years of physical education and nobody ever told me like the simplest thing. For example, did you know that you're supposed to keep about, and I'm standing now for those who are listening to the audio, you're supposed to keep about a 20% tension in your abdominals and in your glutes, meaning you should always be externally rotating your feet just a tiny little bit, creating torsion. I believe is the word, to close the femur gap and create what's called a posterior pelvic tilt. So translation, you had 15 years of physical education in school and no one ever taught you how to stand up correct. <laughs> just think, just like, just process that for a second. And it, it gets worse, right? Like uh, I only recently learned, because I continue to love learning about this, that there's actually a way to set your shoulder joint correctly. Cause most of us roll our shoulders forward. Cause we spend our whole day with our hands in front of us. And there's this whole thing, right? So I recently started wondering, like, I know most people roll their shoulders, but what's the exact right degree mm-hmm. of scapular, uh, protraction, if you will. And it's a, it's a really simple thing. It's really cool. And we're totally in the weeds now, but what <laughs> you do, and I, I can't hear do it, but you raise up both your hands to your sides, turn your palms up to the sky and that set your shoulder there, then turn your palms down, lower them down. That is the correct position for your shoulder and scapula. And you'll notice for the video people that it's much further back than mm. most people stand. Right. And so it's like these little simple things. And I so agree with you. It's like, literally nobody ever taught me how to stand up correctly. Mm -hmm. Blows my mind. Blows my mind. Yeah. um, What were we doing for 15 years? It was an hour a day. Right. And uh, you, I mean, you talked about, you know, like sex ed, we only had a couple hours uh, or, you know, a couple of courses or whatever in it. 
And that's one of the most intimate things that we're going to do to propagate our species as well as, you know, fall in love with another person and nobody ever taught us anything about it. Right. But we had a full semester of trigonometry. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That I would love, and and you know what, educators are not to blame for this. It's, it's just inertia, right? Mm -hmm. Inertia is the problem. And there's, there's so much new information coming out about the human body and the human brain. And it just, the the educational system hasn't changed in so long, except for the obvious places where they needed to change it. Um, You know, computer classes have changed. Like kids are learning how to do iOS in in really well-funded schools, like iOS and Swift development, which is so cool. And yet no one ever stopped to go like, Hey, phys ed, we're still telling people, you know, to, to stretch for, for 10 seconds, but actually the research has shown that you need to stretch for more than 60 to elongate muscle. And, and by the way, it, stretching, you know, non-dynamic static stretching doesn't right. actually really work. According to most research, you actually need dynamic, uh, warm up. So yeah, you know, it's inertia. It's frustrating. Mm, yeah. So we're going to get into diving into the education system. Cause I want to hear some of your thoughts, but before we get there, I want to ask you about um, some of the talks that you give to startup founders about around the power of failing and how yeah. uh, failing has empowered you in your life and in your business. Yeah. Well, you know, the saying goes like you learn a whole lot more from failure than you do from success. And coming to Israel, I, I learned when I, I interned actually at a VC firm. And I realized that in Silicon Valley, people are judged and and kind of evaluated by their successes. But in Israel, to some extent, people are evaluated by their failures. Mm-hmm. And I, I tried to kind of understand why that was. And I realized that the, the ideology is someone who has learned to succeed has learned to succeed in one particular market at one particular time in one particular way. Someone who's learned to fail has probably tried a hundred different ways and still continued to fail. So they've closed more doors, if you will, Mm-hmm. Uh, than the person who succeeded. And I, by the way, I've seen this and I've experienced this, right? I built a seven-figure company when I was 18 years old. Nothing that I learned there, almost nothing. Like some of the people skills that I learned and ideas around management, like psychology is psychology. But the marketing stuff that I used to do there doesn't help me at all in this industry. And I'm still facing the same struggles that I faced there, mm. right? Um, and so... You know, I do think, I I think failure is an incredible teacher. And on top of that, I think, I believe that motion in any direction creates motion in every direction, as my mentor, uh, Linda Levine taught me. And it's, it's this idea that like, even if you go down a path and that path turns out to be a dead end, you've eliminated a path. Mm. And so you, you now have more clarity and focus about the path you should be on. Okay. Well, let's talk about, uh, the path that you're on right now and you're helping thousands with your online courses, how do you think online education will unfold in the future? I think about this a lot because we also build online courses for, for different thought leaders. And I have a consulting side gig. Um, so online education right now is a $335 million a day industry, which actually makes it pretty small compared Mm. to the education industry at large private and public. I mean, that we're, you're talking many, many trillions. Um, and it, as we talked about, uh, the traditional education infrastructure cannot keep up anymore with the pace of change in most fields, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually found, uh, found out recently, I was at Udemy Live, the conference for Udemy instructors, and they did a study that hired some consulting firm to go in because they sell our courses to major, major companies. So all the Fortune 500 are using Udemy courses. And what this study actually found is that this kind of like uh, distributed peer-to-peer marketplace, like real people building online courses was able to keep information up to date seven times faster than traditional centralized learning organizations, which is crazy and cool. So there is this democratization. What I worry about is, um, first off noise, right? Like how do I find the right customer with the right message? Uh, and the same issue that we have with news right now, which is like, who do you trust in a world where anyone can create content? It, it kind of gets scary. And so, um, I, I do think online education is heading that way in the uh, near-term future. In the long-term future, I think things are going to get scary and, and weird and interesting. I think there's going to be a huge role of uh, neurofeedback, right? So actually being able to assess if the student has learned something or not, mm-hmm. uh, using biofeedback, right? Like pupil dilation and stuff like that. And then, you know, the the big, the writing on the wall is already there with AI, right? So actually creating this learning journey that's customized to you based on your pre-existing knowledge and creating an individualized learning experience because everything we've done in education for the last 2000 years since Plato and Aristotle stood in a stadium, right? And, and shouted their ideas at other people is education at scale, which inevitably meant education for the average person, but there's no average person, right? Right. And so we will finally get to a point, which again, we haven't been for thousands and thousands of years, if ever, where we're able to tailor an educational experience for every single human being. And that's going to be wild. Yeah. As we start tailoring um, education for people in particular things that they want to learn or particular paths they're going down, what are the meta skills that you believe are fundamental for each person to learn in our education? Yeah, I think, uh, and I'm going to list one that we don't teach uh, because I think it's something that a society has to teach, but, and we're seeing right now that society has not been teaching it, but it is the ability to evaluate information and question, right? Mm -hmm. Like question where you're getting your information from, look at varying sides of an opinion and come to your own conclusion. Um, and, And that's pretty high up the hierarchy, right? Bloom's hierarchy is actually being able to critically analyze and say, you know, if I reason from first principles, I don't get to the same place that this person's getting. And therefore I don't agree with this argument. Um, and I think that's a meta skill that has to happen because we are, Facebook's a perfect example of this, right? Like what you see on Facebook and what I see on Facebook in terms of political opinions, in terms of news, in terms of uh, trends, totally different. We literally each live in our own world with our own information and increasingly our own facts. And that's a huge problem. If we cannot, first off, if we can't access alternative opinions and sources of information, which Facebook is only now, uh, two days ago, they released like a news brief that they're actually going to start curating news with real humans. But, um, 
you know, if, if you're not able to question and, and do your own original thinking, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. I, then again, like, uh, not to get into conspiracy theories, but there are, there are a lot of leaders in a lot of countries who don't want you to come to your own conclusions. Mm. Yeah. I think, uh, part of it too, is sort of this, um, this heavy hand that we've placed towards like learning a lot of, um, STEM things, you know, mathematics, science and whatnot. And we Mm kind of put things like art and philosophy, the things that help you to start turning on those questions of, Mm -hmm. you know, questioning your beliefs, questioning what you're learning. Um, I think we've lost some of that in our education. Right. We live in a society where like increasingly people, there, there are millions of people who don't believe the earth is round and right. also believe that uh, uh, vaccines are a ploy to control you, <laughs> which blows my mind. Yeah. But it's, it's that again, right? Like it's people. And here's, here's, the, here's the troubling part is those people, there's an amazing documentary called Behind the Curve. And it follows these people and they are reasoning from their own first principles the issue is, is they're doing, they're, they're not doing the reasoning correctly. <laughs> they just don't understand the science, um, which is troubling. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in your TED talk is there's no class that kind of like follows children through their education and like intellectual mm-hmm. development. And one of the things that you also talked about in building courses is like creating this curated learning journey. And so I'm curious, yeah. what do you think like a lifelong curated learning journey for someone would look like? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, the sad truth of it, Brandon, is I don't think it needs to be like a lifelong thing. I think, you know, clearly when a child is, is four years old and I, I haven't, I haven't yet had the opportunity to work with young children because who's going to give a crazy weirdo like me access to their kids, <laughs> but soon I'll have my own to experiment on. Uh, in a very <laughs> Laszlo Polgar kind of way. Uh, but um, clearly children who are four years old are not going to be taught speed reading because they need to be taught to read by sounding it out. And and clearly they're not going to create memory palaces because I don't think they have the patience or attention span. But teaching children like, hey, when we learn something, let's always think about... And it, it could be, you know, ideally it would be woven in and every educator would know this and would remind us, right? So when we're four years old, and we're learning how to read the hands of a clock in first grade or kindergarten or wherever, right? Which, by the way, I struggled with a ton. Like That was one of my first memories of school is not figuring out how to read the hands of a clock. Creating those connections and saying like, okay, well, how can we remember these different things in these different positions? And let's connect this to our pre-existing knowledge. The next stage beyond that is how do we create visualizations? And that can happen around eight years old. The next stage beyond that can be how do we create memory palaces and use our memory? And, and it can be very interactive. So I don't think it's a lifelong, I think it's, there are stages mm-hmm. and it could honestly be a few hours every semester is, mm-hmm. is the sad truth of it. Um, and I always advocate to, to parents, right? Because people always ask me, and we have a course on raising super learners, but it's more about how do you interact with your child and created mm-hmm. by my, one of my mentors. But um, people always ask me, you know, do, how, how can I teach these techniques to my kids? And my answer is always spoon feed it to them and make it fun, make it a game. Like what's right. more fun for kids than imagination and pictures and thinking of silly things and, you know, challenging their parents. Like when I was a kid, I used my favorite game in the car 
was uh, the syllables game, right? So my mom would come up with as long a word as she could, and then I'd have to beat it, right? So, okay, seven syllables. How can I beat seven syllables? So much fun. And as a parent, you can make this into an interactive and fun game of like, all right, next week, we're getting quizzed on all the US presidents. Let's learn them in order. And let's, why don't we go, you know, to Auntie uh, Linda's house and we'll walk around and we'll place all the presidents in a memory Mm. palace. And how much fun is that? So much fun, like way more fun than sitting and trying to memorize them from flashcards. That's yeah, all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, what do you see the relationship of coaching or mentors in combination with teaching? I know that you recently did a coaching program with your courses yeah. to have that accountability. So what do you see that relationship being? Yeah. So I, I've spent the last six years trying to make our courses as perfect as possible in the sense that we give all the guidance we can step-by-step explanations, what to do in every single day. And what I've realized is, um, information can't create transformation without implementation. And what stops most people from implementation is accountability. So I, as you said, I've spent the last few months training super learner certified coaches, not to teach my materials because I've, as I said, spent six years refining the (laughs) courses. And I mean, I'm pretty confident that people who actually do the materials will get through it and and will, will succeed. It's more about accountability. It's about, you know, if you get stuck, do you get frustrated and drop off or is someone holding you accountable and helping you get unstuck? So, um, I believe the most valuable thing a coach can do, and I've had many coaches and many mentors, the most valuable thing they can do is not to teach you per se. I think there's a reason that there's the word coach and there's the word teacher. They're two very different things. What a coach does is first off, hold you accountable, as I said, and second off, ask you questions and challenge you, right? Is, well, you know, you claim you can't do X, Y, let's, let's think about why, or, or, you know, I'm noticing this, I'm holding up this mirror to you. You use this word. Let's talk about that. Um, and, and not in the sense of like a psychologist would, but a lot of times when I'll coach someone or mentor someone, I'll say, well, you came to this conclusion and I, that's not an obvious conclusion. Can you explain to me how you reach that conclusion about, you know, this is what you need to do and, and challenge them and say, well, what if it were this way? Have you considered it that way? So uh, that's what I'm training my coaches to do. And obviously they're very uh, heavily steeped in the super learner methodology. They are all practicing super learners themselves. So they know mm-hmm. the materials, uh, but they're really there to hold people accountable. And it's the same thing I do in, um, in my business coaching. I fly to London uh, every three months, learn some new techniques from a teacher, and then have a coach who holds me accountable, calls me every month, says, what are you doing with what you learned? Have you implemented it? What questions do you have? How's it working? And, and you'd be amazed how much more I implement. Yeah. So with everything that you know about accelerated learning, um, with implementing coaches alongside teachers, if you were to try and tackle the behemoth of the education system, how would you change it? Or what do you think the education system of the future looks like? Yeah. So a lot of different things. First off, all learning would be made, would be forced to be made interactive and visual. So we would learn history by visualizing or by watching or by pictures 
recreations. We would learn biology by, you know, even if it had to be virtual reality simulations of what Mm -hmm. happens in the mitochondria, all learning would immediately be visual. That's the first thing. Even mathematics would be visual. Uh, History, visual. Mm -hmm. English, maybe not so visual, but (laughs) there would be a way to make everything visual. The next big, big change would be that all learning would be reviewed and, and repeated, right? So one of my big bones with the education system is, all right, learn geometry, take the geometry final exam, you're done with geometry, move on. And if you're lucky, something that you learn in the future will kind of touch on geometry, but most likely what happens is you never do it again, and so you forget it. Like right. Besides that little mitochondria comment I mentioned, I took years of biology, I don't remember anything. Like, <laughs> Literally, I I don't remember anything else from biology and I should. And so what I would do is, uh, and and by the way, I'm not anti-testing. Testing is phenomenal. But what I would do is is have regular testing long after, right? So instead of doing, uh, you know, one week of reading week and final exams, I might take a month out of each semester, for example, and review everything, not just that semester. And it could be, it could be light and it could be kind of like highlights, but you need to maintain those memories. And sure, there are some things like basic arithmetic, nobody's going to forget that. But like, you know, you graduate from US history and you go on to European history and then you just forget US history and that's crazy. Right. So uh, there would be review baked in. And then the next thing would be really... Um, connecting a lot more prior knowledge and, and getting people engaged and interested in tailoring their learning experience. Like we are limited right now. The big bottleneck in traditional education, not online education is the human factor, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's teachers are already overworked and underpaid. There's 30 kids and one teacher. And so if we can leverage technology and a lot of schools have already started doing this, right? Like sending kids onto the computer to do their own learning and figure out like, what are they passionate about and how can they learn it? Uh, that's all great. And I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And I think one of the challenges, if you will, is that we as a society need to decide what is What's the price of entry? Like what's the base minimum that we're not willing to sacrifice? Don't care if you're interested or not. For example, I kind of think everybody needs to know about World War I and World War II. (laughs) I really don't care if you plan to be an engineer. Like me personally, if you are going to vote in a society that I'm going to live in, I'd really feel more comfortable if you were educated about that. Right. Um, you know, same with U.S. history, same with uh, some level of political science, right? Like, I'd, I'd really like for you to understand how democracy works, you know, philosophy. So I think we as a society need to make those decisions and we need to acknowledge that what was decided 50 or 100 years ago as that le- basic level of entry is no longer true. Like, every kid has to learn algebra. Personally, if you show an aptitude for being a poet at age 12, I'm cool with you not learning you know, <laughs> algebra. And, and I'm still more than happy for us to live in the same society. So um, I do think that that needs to change. I think a lot of fat needs to be trimmed. And in place of that fat, we need to be nourishing kids and, and adults, by the way, with the things that really make them passionate about learning. Because people today, and, and I was almost tempted to say like people in schools today, but people today, period, are on this hamster wheel of learning, which is wonderful. It is actually a wonderful thing. Like people always talk about, 
you know, information changes so fast. I think it's incredible because Mm -hmm. it's freedom, right? Like anyone can create information and add to this growing body of human knowledge. And I think that's the coolest thing. And we're so blessed to live in this time. But at the same time, like we all need to be lifelong learners Mm -hmm. and we need to be very proficient at learning, unlearning and relearning, or we will be left behind. Mm, Yeah. Well, I could dive so much deeper, but before (laughs) I get to my last question, where can everybody find you, what you're doing, where can they get the book? All right. A lot of links. Uh, Good thing I'm a memory expert. So (laughs) superhumanacademy.com. People can check out my podcast, my courses. They can take a free seven-day trial of all my programs. And we have a five-day memory mastery course that I encourage people to take. Seven-day trial, five-day memory. They don't have to pay anything. They can finish the course. So that's cool. Superhumanacademy.com slash book uh, is where you pick up the book. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Uh, Facebook, I'm Jonathan Levy, official. Instagram, entrepreneur, N-E-W-E-R. And I'm on YouTube as well. And I will send you all the links for the show notes because there's a lot of them. (laughs) Awesome. Well, my very last question is, how can we push the world to evolve? Yes. Well, I believe that evolution as it pertains to in our times is learning and knowledge, right? Uh, Evolution happens so slow for us to notice, but evolution of knowledge, evolution of technology, these are things that happen right before our eyes. At least Mm -hmm. we're blessed to be in a time where it's literally happening every single day. And so I believe it's, it's all about empowering people to keep up with the pace of progress and knowledge. Mm. And that's why I do what I do every day. Love it. Well, thank you, Jonathan, so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Brandon. It was so much fun. Hey, you. Yes, you. I want to thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, then please open up your podcast app, rate and review. That's really going to help get this life-changing content out to more entrepreneurs just like you who are pushing the world forward. As always, my friend, keep evolving.